in Memphis with Greg Nagy. It is Nagy, right? Because sometimes I hear the word Nagy. The anglicized, uh, the anglicized version of my Hungarian name is Nagy to a lot of people and to my family. So um, some people sometimes pronounce the A short, short vowel, so Nagy, but you know, my eye twitches when it, no, it's fine, whatever, <laughs> I don't care. But it is Nagy, like Navy, Nagy. Uh, the Hungarian pronunciation, I can't really do it, but somehow they conflate the G and the Y together, so it sounds like you're choking on your dinner. Nudg, nudg, something oh. like that. Yeah, so that's, um, we're all, all my whole family's mis, you know, mispronouncing it, technically. And were you brought up Hungarian at all? Like, is there any Hungarian? I can't speak it. Um, my grandparents um, both were born in the States. My grandfather actually got sent back to Hungary for about 12 years, uh, you know, when he was just a baby. So his, you know, his English was still fairly broken. And, but, um, and my dad is 100% and he could speak a bit. Uh, but most of the, it was like, a, I don't know if it'd be abusive terms, but like a pigeon culture, you know, like if, you, if, if we can, um, between American and, and Eastern European, as far as like, you know, we had the concept of an extended family that's a little bit different with Eastern European descendants, you know, where you're not uncommon to have the whole extended family get together every Sunday for dinner and that kind of stuff. So, and then they, my grandparents both went to a Hungarian reformed church. So there was, you know, some ritual there, but um, it was still pretty westernized, you know, I mean. Did you ever go to Hungary? Is there no, I, I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to, and I was talking with a band, I'm trying to remember the name of this band in Budapest, and they were trying to get me to come over and do something, it just, it just, you know, the timing wasn't right, you know, but, uh, you should do it. I would, I would love it. I hear the women are hideous looking though. I'm kidding. I hear they're beautiful. I hear they're beautiful. <laughs> well, I don't, off think, the I don't think you should go now. <laughs> no, I hear the women are gorgeous, but I have a girlfriend, so we'll talk about something else. So, Greg, I've, I've known you for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, you're from Flint, Michigan, who's been in the news lately, and I think I contacted you not too long ago about that. Right. The ugly situation with the water and made sure that you weren't affected. More so than, than you or used I, to or be. Or I couldn't use it for an excuse. <laughs> but, I mean, that's something else, too. To, I mean, that's it's a horrendous situation to be in for some of those people living in Flint. It's surreal, you know. It... How do I want to say this? You know, you know the old adage: any press is good press. Well, I don't think it's good press. It, it for so long. I mean, Flint ends up becoming almost like a punchline or a, a joke for a lot of people. And I'm not defensive about it, but it's just it's almost like I'm embarrassed that we are keep struggling and have for the past you know couple decades or so, several decades, um, probably since the late '70s. You know, things started to, to go awry with GM pulling out and. Um, Basically, you know, they created this massive infrastructure to support industry, and uh, age-old story, industry left and didn't clean up. <laughs> right. And so I heard, now I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I mean, I read that some of the old water lines were from like the previous century still, and some were made out of wood. Hmm. And most of the issues, I guess, were more the supply lines coming from the mains into the houses, you know, the, the, the lead and the pipes and stuff. But the other issue is simply when, when you don't have enough of a population to consume the water through a, a huge infrastructure, there's a lot of water that just doesn't move and becomes stagnant. So it wasn't just lead. There was a lot of bacterial 
mm-hmm. issues and other stuff. I mean, this has been going on. I, I mean, I think it's been going on for at least a decade where I've been hearing things. And then the biggest slap in the face for the Flint residents, and I kind of understand both sides of this, the city had to char- charge more for this crappy water because they were trying to make improvements or right. said they were trying to make improvements. So they were paying like twice as much for this water that they, they couldn't even use. And so also, as you probably know, the, the economy of Flint uh, is not so good. So these are people who can't afford you know, double water pay bills. So some people weren't paying their water bill. Their water was getting shut off. It's crazy. Yeah, so there, so not too long ago, some judge kind of stepped in and, and just said, um, you know, we, we can't shut your water off and, and, and you don't have to pay this. So but I think at some point, honestly, there needs to be... There needs to be some kind of compensation for it. You know, I don't know. I'm not a politician, and nor am I an economist, but it's a, it's a sad situation. I mean, we're talking about a pretty basic, you know, this is third world stuff that we're talking about, about not having fresh water. I mean, come on, seriously. Um, so tell me the good side of Flint. You've lived there for a Oh, well, I mean, you know, this almost sounds like I'm, you know, Deluded to some people, like when I say, "Look, there's a there is there is a lot of positive growth going on, and a lot of it's driven by the colleges, the University of Michigan, Michigan State, Wayne State, I think Eastern Central. I mean, almost all of them have satellite, uh, either have satellite programs or have now have buildings. Michigan State has actually um, grabbed the I think it's the old Hilton or the Hyatt down on the river, Flint River, um, and they're using it for dorms." Uh, Michigan State is opening up a branch of their medical school in Flint. I mean, that's what the, that's what we kind of need, you know. Right. I think part of the reason you take a, the, the the state's capital, like you take Lansing, and you look at, they're very similar to Flint. They both had the GM factories, and then they had them closed. But the difference, you know, they had the capital, state government, but they also had Michigan State, and then and Cooley Law School, and all these other schools really established and happening, so they could kind of absorb some of the some of the um, blow or whatever from GM taking off um, but there's not as there's there's a victim mentality among among a lot of folks in town and it's understandable but then there's all but then also I meet these movers and shakers who are making money in spite of conditions because they are not ideal conditions right um, who are there there are restaurants that have opened up uh, downtown Flint they're um, you know, some people call it gentrification, and they use it in a negative sense. But then I'm thinking, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, I get what they're saying. If somebody comes in and destroys maybe the architecture or something else, but no, there are people who are coming in, they're maintaining, the, you know, the 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 architecture and, and and stuff. And so, it's 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 picking up. I think the water thing hurt a lot of the businesses in the past couple years downtown, the restaurants and stuff. You know, because they all have signs out in front. You know, the water's okay to drink. And one of the most surreal things I, I recent, w- recently witnessed in Flint is I saw a billboard, a billboard about the water, but it would look like something from some dystopic, um, you know, sci-fi movie. Like, but it was something about the, you know, even if you boil it, do not drink it, and it's like ominous. And I'm like, that's funny and depressing all at the same time, you know? Like, what the heck? And there's but, a picture of RoboCop. No, I'm kidding. I made that part up. <laughs> but he's he's from not too far away. He's from Detroit. He's going to come up any day now. Uh, so. But yeah. as a musician, what's the scene like? Like, I mean, I, I know that you don't just play in Flint, but um, tell me about being a musician from a, around Flint and what effects that has. 
two things, a couple of different things operating. I mean, the one thing I didn't realize as I was growing up in, in, in the Flint, Saginaw, Detroit area, as a kid, how much musical heritage there is across genres. Um, I didn't realize that until I moved to another state and I would have conversations with people because not only was the, the obvious big names, the Motown, the jazz, everything, you know, even electronic music was, you know, basically started. Grand funk. Grand funk. I mean, it goes on and on. And um, you move to another state and you talk to people about maybe just playing guitar in a restaurant and they'll say, why would somebody play guitar in a restaurant? Like it's not even part of the culture in certain parts of the country. It just doesn't, like, why would we do that? We have a jukebox, you know? Long time ago in many parts of the country, the jukebox got rid of the piano player or whatever. Mm -hmm. But because there were, there was a, a culture of supporting and, and celebrating that stuff in the past, there were these tiers, like you had A clubs and B clubs and C clubs and D clubs and people would work their way up through and there's all this competition and all this. That's all gone, you know? The economy doesn't support it and, and youth culture's consuming entertainment differently now. But there's still like this something, something in the in the social milieu, if you will, of of the area that that people are having fun in spite of conditions, which is some of the best music, right? Mm -hmm. And even though the opportunities to make a, a living at it are becoming tougher, you have to get more and more creative. And I'm amazed at how many talented people there are around me. You know, they just surprise me. I mean. I'll go do an open mic or something every once in a while. Some, and sometimes the young, younger people too come up and I'm just like, wow. Did you ever think about moving out? Was that ever thought Well, I, we, we, you know, uh, I had lived in um, Charlotte's, outside of Charlottesville, Virginia for a while. You know, the, actually in Crozet, Virginia, um, at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I met one of old Dave Matthews' old, you know, songwriting buddies down there and, and actually hung out a minute with, I can't think of his name now. But um, but I got a taste of what that musical culture was like, and it it came from a different place than what what you mm -hmm. know the Midwest did, what the what the industrial musical culture was about. It was more eclectic. Um, it, it it was it wasn't rooted in a, a a local tradition as much as it was pulling from everything. You, it would not be uncommon to, to see a band in Charlottesville that was drawing from funk and polka and and um, bluegrass and heavy metal all at the same time, you know, and making it work. And I'm thinking nobody back home thinks like this. We were more industrial, you know, a little bit grittier, you know, and it, it's, it's apples and oranges. I can't say that one's better than the other, but having that experience was kind of eye-opening to see how just the people in general still uh, in the community still have some influence as to how music um, at the very least gets colored. I, I think, you know, the moment the internet and all that took off, I mean, you know, in musical and artistic influence, it, it gets, becomes more, I don't want to say homogenized, but more diversely informed and right. more easily, yeah. you know, whereas in the past, what, you'd have Memphis blues and St. Louis blues and Austin blues and Detroit blues and Chicago, and they had a sound. And those, they didn't cross. Now here, like on my last record, I got one song where it's almost schizophrenic. I have a Memphis uh, stomp in the, um, in the verse, and then the chorus is a Motown four in the floor groove, you know, and I, I probably got your nose broke doing that in the 60s. But <laughs> <laughs> 
I blame the internet. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I mean, you know, I plug my album in there. I got that right. That was really good. Those. We're not going to talk about the album at all. So oh, okay. It's a good thing you did that. <laughs> but but you can just start when you edit. You can start right there. <laughs> <laughs> Song's called "Walk Out That Door." Track two. Well, what's the album called? Stranded. Amazing. It's amazing. How does that happen? You want to talk about the no, album? No, I don't. No, I, we I, should talk no, about no. the album. Actually, record, that was the I don't want to talk about my record. I've done my time. But this record has done very well for you. Defined very well. It sold more than three copies. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> no, but you got a lot of critical. Oh, no, you're not kidding. It did sell more than three copies. Not much more. There's my dad, and he got one. My but he, did he pay? Yeah. Oh. Wow, that's well. Good. You know, I was his son. He paid then some. <laughs> he, he paid dearly. <laughs> he paid dearly. <laughs> um, the album. No, I no. no we we talk to about whatever you want to talk about. I'm fine. <laughs> Nobody cares about Flint. Uh, nobody no, cares about music either. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what's your What's your podcast about? <laughs> no. I have no idea. <laughs> um, no, but I guess my my point was so you you never really thought about leaving even Flint as a musical community and going somewhere else to... Every day. (laughs) No. Everybody thinks about leaving someplace, even when it seems like they're, you know, in a a beautiful place to an outsider. And nobody's saying that about Flint right now, but... um, it's home, you know, and I did move away, not from the, for music, but with my family for a while. And I had a bit of a culture shock, you know, uh, living in Charlottesville where, you know, if, if a business, if a place went out of business and a building became abandoned within a day, coming soon, there's another business coming in. And on the, on the flip side of that in Flint, you know, you can drive down Dort Highway or, or just about anywhere and like one out of 20 buildings as a business. And they've been vacant for like 20 years, and they're not. Nobody's tearing them down. Hmm. And it's just very third world countryish in, in spots. And the same with the neighborhoods. They had a grant a few years ago to tear down like 8,000 houses. Um, and yet, you know, how do I say this? I don't want to romanticize it, that kind of adversity or that kind of change, but I do think that it does. It does drive some creativity. I, I don't, you know, I think you can be creative wherever. You can mm-hmm. be in the middle of the woods and be creative. I don't think you have to go through it. But I, I don't, I'm proud of, you know, being from, from, from Flint, but I am also, maybe it's my Hungarian blood, but I have this bit of this gym, gypsy wanderlust. So when I'm walking around the streets of Memphis or when I'm in Toronto, I can m- totally imagine myself um, in a chameleon sense just coming in and, and paying attention to the culture and being inspired by it. Because um, anybody can, um, you know, when you talk about the craft of, of, of creating music, uh, you can think about um, one of the devices you can use is, uh, in fact, um, my friend Mick Colossa was talking about this uh, the other day too. Um, go down to a street corner, sit, and just listen to sounds, just smell the smells, you know, just use all your senses as much as possible to just take in as much information as you can. Sorry about that. Um, so clearly, any community you go into, well, the, the, and the joke I made to Mick, who's also from Michigan, I just said, well, you know, in Flint, it smells. I mean, because of the industry. 
if you really sit and think about it, you know, that, even if you're not thinking about it, even if it's on a subconscious level, your senses are going to inform you in some way or another. Either you're creating in a congruent manner to what you're experiencing or in an escapist, you know, inconsistent manner. But it's still, it's still an influence, you know. I, I, I do believe that, you know. Um, and so, in all seriousness, you asked me, you know, about leaving. I can argue either way on it, you know. I can say... I remember, I remember reaching out to record labels um, uh, back when I was more ambitious um, and asking them, this was quite a while ago, it's like in the 90s, and asking, hey, you know, where do most, uh, where do most musicians live, you know, like who you sign or whatever? Like it was just a dumb, naive question. They're like, wherever they're living. <laughs> and then if, and if they need to come here to do work, but he said, no, it's not like, the old model is you pack up and you go to Nashville, or you pack up, you go to Memphis, or you pack up, you go to Detroit. Well, geez, man, you know this. I mean, you're doing it right now. This recording technology has become so accessible. Uh, the prosumer, I think they call it, you know, consumer mm -hmm. professional hybrid of equipment that you can get world-class uh, audio recordings and, and, and stuff um, that within the reach of, of anybody, anywhere. And the whole... Uh, digital age of, of, of using what they call DAWs, digital audio workstations and, and laptops uh, allows all kinds of, it's a more democratic approach. Now, of course, that means you, you have more stuff that might not be that good that you get to hear or have to hear. But it also means just because somebody doesn't have money, it's not going to, it doesn't have to stop them. Right. You know, and uh, I think of somebody like, um, uh, Stevie Wonder and and Prince and those guys who were like the one, you know, they played all the instruments and they were creating the whole concepts, you know. I'm amazed they pulled off what they pulled off before the digital age because now uh, an up-and-coming uh, Stevie Wonder could be doing it on his laptop in the room right next to you, mm -hmm. you know, while he's on vacation. It's just, it, it's become... But on the other hand, people are making the argument that when that stuff becomes too easily accessible too, that, that people don't work as hard at it. So I, I don't know why I'm digressing on it, but, but, I, just, I, just but wanted... I feel the same way about communities. It's like you could say, I'm going to go someplace where it appears that things are going to, I'm going to go in here and they're going to welcome me with open arms. I've had a, a ton of friends who said, man, we went to Nashville and holy smokes, was it, you know, competitive. And it was just, there wasn't much opportunity. Sometimes you have the greater opportunity in the area where you think you won't have opportunity. Because instead of saying I'm walking into an, an extant or an existing scene, music scene in quotation marks, you can make a scene, and I don't mean like throw a tantrum, although I can do that too. But you go in and you make a scene. You know, you go in and you socially you 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 socially construct through your promotional activity and your performances. You you make fans. It's not like there's these. It's not like there's this. It's the old analogy of the tree with so many apples on it. Well, you know, there can be other trees, and there can be other fruit, and there can be other things and I, I've had this conversation with a few people here even who've been a, a little disheartened that maybe they didn't get a nomination on a given year and and um, and I said there's seven billion people in the world man how many people are here in Memphis right now how many people are and I'm not dissing the Blues Foundation I love the Blues Foundation I really sincerely do I, I really respect and admire the work that goes into it but the point is if that door isn't open to you at that very moment don't stop I mean, you can keep coming back to it and knocking. Maybe they'll open it, maybe they won't, doesn't matter. 
There's seven billion people in the world. Right. I mean, you we should also say, like, yeah. we're here in Memphis because yeah. of the blues music. Right, 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 right. Sorry. Um, but okay, so like career-wise, I know that you have regional pockets of places you play, and I know that you probably play a lot all over Michigan. I know you play in San Francisco and parts of California. Right. I know when you when I see you in Memphis, you're usually gigging here, and you're right. People know who you are. Two or three. Yeah, it's, I think the same people who bought the album. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know who I am, right? Okay. You act like you but, know. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, as a, as a career plan, what's the strategy? Like, is at, at the level you're at, what, what is the goal that you, you, you keep with you at this point? I know they say you're supposed to have goals, and I'm not trying to be funny, but it's going to come out funny. <laughs> I can tell right now. <laughs> but why are you crying? No, because <laughs> I feel like my dad's interviewing me right now. Son, when are you going to get a job already? Gosh, <laughs> I don't mean to be like that. No, but it's I, okay, Dad. No, that's right now. <laughs> no, I don't. I I think this sounds as corny as this might sound, and and uh, and maybe it's a function of being fifty three years of age, going through the divorce a couple years ago, blah blah blah. But I really been getting into the whole present moment process thing, you know, like being engaged in a process and being present moment with the process. Because otherwise what I had been doing is I've been thinking too much about things in the past that I might have regretted or I've been worrying too much about future things. And the thing about a goal, it's a future thing. Right. Um, the other thing about a goal too is if you're too, you have to, I mean, you have to be motivated and you have to do the work every day. But you also, I think, I don't know why I'm giving any, I'm not giving anybody advice, trust me. Although this might fall in the category if I followed half my own advice, I'd be twice as successful. But... If you keep, if one were to keep their peripheral vision open, so theoretically, if I were doing this, <laughs> you keep your peripheral vision open, and as you pursue whatever it is, at any given moment, and you work on your art, your craft, whatever your vocation, but you keep your peripheral vision open, you can let your talent, because I think as our talents, they kind of emerge as we engage in things. Like we might do something and didn't realize we had a talent. Like maybe you're, you know, maybe you're a songwriter, but you find yourself in a studio one day. And the engineer is having trouble with the signal or whatever, and all of a sudden, to you, it just makes perfect sense, like what's going on. And you speak up and you say, "Well, by the way, what if you just push that button over there?" And the guy's like, "Well, how did you? I don't know." Sometimes we have these intuitive, intelligent things that seem to emerge, and if you keep your peripheral vision open for opportunity, you can let your talents, whatever they become, direct the, you know, alter the trajectory. Well, not trajectory, but alter the course a little bit. Um, I know in a more generalized sense, I, I love the process of um, creating. I love the process of performing. Um, I love feeling as though I'm improving, I hope, I believe I'm improving as a vocalist and improving as a guitar player, improving as a songwriter. I like all of that, but then as I've been going through all of that, I've also learned some things about uh, production um, and even more kind of seemingly more fringy things they're not that fringy but like um acoustical design of buildings you know and uh in fact i was talking with uh, steven out at biscuits and blues i just started go going off on my 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 uh acoustical design ideas i'm like well you know if you got this one material and you did this over here i mean things that i've 
because I've listened and I, and, and, and I have a passion for all of it. So as far as the goal, the goal is I want to be able to keep from being homeless here. Um, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, but I want to keep feeling passionate about what it is that I'm doing. And I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, you need to surround yourself with people who are also fairly positive most of the time and they want to create and do something meaning, meaningful. I think it's meaningfulness more than happiness. Because sometimes when I'm chasing meaning, being, something being meaningful, I'm not that happy. But I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I feel like it, it's, 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 some, it's substantive, if that's the term, or it's, it has something to it that is bigger than me. Um, okay, so speaking of your last album, which I presume would be fair to say was kind of inspired by what you were going through in your life, right? Which was a difficult time in your life of right. going through a divorce, right? Right. At that point of going through it, I, I know sometimes hardship can inspire more creativity or more art or whatever. I don't know if that was the motivation, or you were going to you started recording an album and then all of a sudden your life was changing or whatever. But tell me about that process of having to kind of open yourself up or to reveal yourself in what you're going through which is a difficult time and in, in, in create like was it was it a choice to say I'm gonna reveal a little bit about what I'm going through or is it no choice because that is what you're going through you know, don't get me going off on free will now we'll be here for hours whether it was a choice or not but it but but it was a coping mechanism um, and at times it seemed I almost wasn't in control of exactly how um, open I would be about my struggles. But it wasn't, I don't believe it was from a egocentric or narcissistic or histrionic, um, I hope not, standpoint. I think I always felt like, well, if somebody else is, it was about connection. It was about if somebody else is going through this and I'm going through it. And any moment I had an improvement in it, I wanted somebody else to know it gets better. I, it made me feel good to know that I wasn't alone in it. Mm -hmm. But it also... I don't know. I want, I was. I thought if if anything good were to come out of it, hopefully somebody would come up to me and say, you know, you inspired me to get through it myself. So that's why I felt, it, it, for me, it felt more noble um, to be open about it. But it's up to everybody's. Everybody has to handle it differently. You know, I I remember thinking there was something really odd about me, odder than you might even imagine, when I'm like sitting at a bar going through this divorce and I'm telling strangers my life story and I'm not drunk. Well, maybe a little sometimes, but not usually. <laughs> and and then yet I would meet other people who were going through the same thing, and they wouldn't tell anybody, not coworkers or anything. And neither approach is wrong. You know, it's just it really comes on your comfort thing, and we all kind of deal with it differently. We all have a different process. But for me, it was just it was accepting it. It's like every time you would hear the narrative, you would go, "This really is happening." I, Twenty-three years of marriage is really ending. I didn't see this coming. I'm really worried about my children. You know, what do people do? And 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 feeling almost embarrassed that it was hitting me as hard as it was hitting me because I figured I know what over half the population goes through it or around half. I didn't think I was going to live through it. I really thought at one point I was going to die. I thought it was going to kill me. It was that dramatic for me. Um, so then, you know, making a record in that. There were moments where I couldn't function. 
mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the music. Um, and yet, there were other moments where it was so cathartic. And one of the key moments was, for me, was, um, you know, I do most of my own songwriting, but I had the song sent to me from uh, Jeff Paris. And Jeff was uh, with Keb Mo, Keb Mo for years, but Jeff was a writer for Polydor A&M for 18 years, you know, major label. And, I mean, he wrote three hits for Luther Vandross, Vandross, excuse me, I'm pronouncing that wrong, I think Vandross, and uh, Toto and and Rod Stewart and Bill Whitton. When he was yeah. young, he played with Bill. I mean, the guy's just iconic, you know. I'm like, I can't even believe he's reaching out to me, but, and I'm not, that's not false humility. It's just he even told me why he was. He said, you know, because he doesn't work for Polydor A&M anymore. <laughs> But he, but he wrote songs for Cray, Robert Cray, and so he, he was sending me songs before, and I, and I just, I don't know, he, he's one of those guys who sings great, plays everything great, he sends it to you, and you hear it, and you're intimidated by the dem- demo, and you're like, well, I can't do better than that, so I'm not going to do it, or I can't even do that well. Well, he sent me this song called Stranded, you know, and, and, um, and the day he sent it to me was the day I was supposed to drive over to, from Flint to Lansing at, uh, to Jim Alfredson's home studio and track these other tunes that we had worked on, and all the band was going to be there. And I took the MP3 from Jeff's uh, email, put it on a CD, got in the van, had to drive an hour, and I'm singing the lyrics. And the more I sing it, the better I start to feel. And the more I sing it, the better I start to feel. And and it gets better, and I I pull in, and I walk in, and I hand it to the guys, I said, we're gonna do this first. And they're like, oh, and they listen to it, your stuff's better. You know, I'm like, you guys, I'm not even paying you that much. You don't have to lie to me. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, we like what we're doing. You know, let's just, I'm like, let's just track it. You know, they were kind of a little bit re- resistant, but, but they were cool about it. So we get into it, we track it. And then about two hours later, Jeff Paris is, you know, sending me a text. So did you hate it? <laughs> Bigger fish than you have told me they hated songs. You know, he's got, he's a character. You, know, you can tell me you hate it. It's all right. I'm like, no, we already recorded it. He came unglued. He said all those years of working for the major label, it usually took two to three weeks just to get a rejection or an acceptance. This is a guy who had songwriting down as a craft. He could do three a day and just shop them out. So he's used to rejection too. But me, I'm like, no, I already recorded it. And so um, I sent it to him and then he listened to it. And then he had some very constructive you know, crit- criticisms and suggestions about how he vocally phrased things. And so I went back and, and re-sang a, a verse, I think. and. Um, became the title track for the record. But that was something that, had I not been going through the stuff, not only was the song cathartic because of what I was going through at the time, but also I was a little, I had my wings clipped a little bit. You know, you, you know they say great art comes from suffering, but not while you're suffering. Sometimes while you're suffering, you don't wanna do anything. Mm-hmm. So he was, kind of give, he was kind of giving me a gift. He was kind of helping me up a little bit. And then accomplishing this tune and it's kind of neutral too it's kind of like when you're going through a lot of self-doubt and you're trying to create stuff it's hard to be a good judge of whether or not you you know you're doing well so this is somebody else's writing somebody else's song and all i knew is i felt good <laughs> performing it i wanted to record it to see how it would come out can you can you just explain that a little more while you're driving and you're singing and you're feeling good you're singing more and you feel better tell me what what is that like tell me what what it was about that tune or what did you feel about it or what was the connection that I it's funny because if I were in a better state it was it was I was I was flat on the ground emotionally at the time so it was somebody giving me a hand up is what it felt like more than anything else not the song itself but also Jeff's you know saying hey you know uh, I, I think 
he knew enough about me, you know, to know what I was going through. And he said, "Hey, this is um, this is something I think you want to you want to consider." And he had sent me songs before, and I, like I said, I was always intimidated by him. But so it was. If had I gotten that song a year earlier, or maybe even a year later, I might not have done it. It was it was just timing. The timing was right. You know, I I wasn't just that I was open to it. It was also that I was not. I needed a hand up. I needed somebody to say, "Hey, man, you know, I feel I kind of feel you, and and I I really can hear you doing this." And it was it was just, and I needed it. I needed that kind of um, I hate to say it that external validation in that moment. Right. I, was I mean, in a was there place. was it a good time to be even recording an album? No, it was, you, Did you have to? do But that? I had to. I because this is what I thought. I wasn't sure I was going to release it, and I said, and I and I and I and I said. If I can just get through the process, and if I don't sell a single copy, I still feel like I, it's a victory because the process is not easy. Even mm-hmm. when you're emotionally centered and everything's cool, it's not easy making a record. Sometimes it, certain tunes are easy, and sometimes they just happen. But the whole production aspect, and you know, you know, even the executive production aspect of organizing musicians and setting up studio time—it's you know, yeah. it's a full-time job. Um, and I don't know. It, it just felt like a victory just to make the record, um, more so than the other records. And then when you finished making the record, how did you feel? Because uh, you've kind of opened yourself up, then, right? And not that you don't. In well, all your records, the thing right? that really kind of was uncomfortable for me, and I didn't really think about it. Um, well, I don't know if I should tell the funny story or the. Let me tell the funny one first, and and I gotta figure out a way to word this so it doesn't sound too crass or weird. Jim Elfordson, who I've been working with for over a decade, and we used to be in Root Doctor together, and he toured with Geneva Magnus for the last, you know, he up until about a year and a half ago, he was t- touring with Geneva for about four years. Jenna, Geneva Magnus there, and um, he uh, he had this habit of putting weird song titles on demos so like i could do like a real serious blues and he'd have like like a virgin by madonna you put like you put the digital so so if you're so if you're reading if you're watching the demo on your computer and you're considering it you'll see that you know greg nagy um i stubbed my toe ouch you know just really random stupid things well it just so happened and i can't believe i'm telling this story oh my gosh Hopefully my ex-in-laws won't hear it. Um, I, I have a fairly decent relationship with my ex-in-laws. They were bringing me over a bed for my apartment that I had moved into. They were checking up on me. And so we're kind of engaging in pleasantries and talking about stuff. And, and, and my ex-mother-in-law asked me, you know, how's your record coming? You know, can we hear anything? Well, Jim had just sent me Walk Out That Door, which is, by the way, the track I was talking about earlier, the Memphis Stomp Motown right. thing. Walk out that door, and I said, "Oh, well, I, I, Jim just sent me this one demo. I can, it's a little rough, but I can, I can show you where it's going." And you know, the lyrics themselves were heavy enough. What can I do when you stand there crying, uh, saying you're in love with me when I know that you're lying? I mean, you know, whatever. You know, um, Jim writes in the fake title. You probably know where this is going. And it's scrolling across. That instead of walk out that door. He writes, walk out, you whore. (laughs) 
And there's my mother-in-law behind me, like, I'm staring at the computer screen. <laughs> it's not about your daughter. <laughs> it's about another one. Yeah, I don't know if you... <laughs> so, but you got to laugh, right? You got to laugh. It was just one of those moments, you know, where I just... So there's that. There's, so, you know, you got to find humor in some of these moments. And I think they both forgiven me since because they've given, you know, I think they gave me a, a recliner too. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have bed bugs in it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so, okay. Oh, well, so then my father, though, then my father hears the record. This is not funny, but it, it's not that painful, I don't think, anymore. But at the time, I, I sent my dad, uh, I gave my dad a copy of the record when it was done. And uh, he said he couldn't get past the third song. And I'm like, it's that bad, huh? You know, like, <laughs> and he said, you're my son. Like, it's too painful. Yeah. It's too painful to hear it. And I said, well, in, if it's any consolation, Jim wrote track two and track four. <laughs> there come some of the darker tracks, you know. <laughs> he said, but you're singing them. And I can hear it in your voice, and it's, it's, it's killing me. Um, because he went through a similar thing after 20-some years of marriage. Went through a divorce and a whole, you know, nine yards. So he felt like he was reliving. But, you know, when you, when, when you listen to the album and you go through the, the first four tunes are pretty cathartic in a more darker sort of way. But um, track four is called I Won't Give Up. And I've had at least a dozen people walk up to me. I had one guy walk up to me and tell me it, 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 he believes it kept him from taking his own life. And I was at a gig where... The crowd turnout was kind of light, and I was feeling sorry for myself a little bit. And this guy walked up to me in a break and told me that. And I just thought, you know what? If that's the most I ever do, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I saved his life, but the fact that it, the song moved him so much that he could get through the pain of what he was going through, because he went, also went through a divorce after 30 some years, this guy. And he said, I just, I wore that song out. I won't give up. And I had a woman walk up to me at the Flint Bishop Airport one time when I was leaving. She was a, uh, bartender in there and she came up and said she had I won't give up in her alarm clock as a wake up and she said um, that her son was just graduating from high school she was a single mom um, and that as soon as he, she, he was done she was moving to Florida she's starting her life over because you know, he's going off to college and she hated her job she hated being you know in Flint blah 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 and that just I don't know, because I do, I go through, in all seriousness, I go through self-doubt almost daily. Well, daily, probably daily. And even as, as exhilarating as these trips are to Memphis, I, I sometimes look around and say, is this just self-indulgent? Am I really doing anything? Does this really matter? Should it matter? You know, whatever. And and then you just, you, know, you meet somebody who said, this, 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 thanks, you know? And it's like you're making somebody a really good meal that they were really hungry for. Mm -hmm. And that's that human connection. And that's, it, hey, man. As long as I'm no, not overdrawing the bank account or not living in my van down by a river, you know, it, well, I'm still here, you know. Mm -hmm, for sure. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing for somebody to tell you that, right? Well, I, I think so. I think so. And I'm not bragging about it. I'm, no, I'm no. being quite sincere in that most of the time I have this, like, am I an idiot, you know? Was it a big mistake to drop out of grad school in 92 to pr pursue music for a living? And yet, I can't. Do any, I, I can't help but do it. It, it, it. And to even wrestle with the fact that it wasn't, I never had fantasies of being famous, which is a good thing. <laughs> and I never. <laughs> so that worked out well? It worked out well for me, or Rich, doing great there too. Um, 
and even like when I was playing guitar in high school, I had people like, I didn't know you played guitar. I was very, it was a very, very private thing for me. I started guitar, playing guitar at 14, not because I dreamed of attracting girls with it, which is fine because it didn't work either. But I think you're about the only one I've interviewed who said that. Though. Never, <laughs> never. You probably, you, hey, all joking aside, maybe it's, it's all good, you know. But it, that wasn't even in the consideration. I would fall asleep with my guitar on my chest. Because when I was playing guitar, it was my folks. Were, that was when my folks were going through the divorce, and it was not a good one. Um, and it was the only time I didn't feel like crap, is when I was playing the guitar. It was the only time during the entire day when I was 14. Very depressive kid, generally. On the outside, you know, garrulous and goofy, and getting sent to the principal's office for not playing with a pick while in jazz band. I'm still working, working with a therapist on that one, but. Um, but in all seriousness, it, 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 it came out of the gate being a cathartic activity. There, there was never, um, there, there, there was never these, these dreams of superstardom. I wasn't listening to my favorite albums and imagining myself on a big stage. I never, I never went through that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's what people have to do. They have to do the imagery to get to that point. But for me, it's always been about feeling good in spite of conditions. And then also, as I get older in particular, human connection and just feeling that you know letting people know you're not alone man we everybody goes through stuff and please don't don't give up don't let don't let your mood your dark mood on a given day make a permanent decision that you know will either affect you for the rest of your life or you know heaven help us end your life you know i know and, you can't eat on the words of people telling you how much those song your songs meant but to have somebody come up to you and tell you what it meant to them to that point where it might have saved their lives or it just keeps them going it's just it's priceless it's amazing I, I, it, it keeps me going you know and again it i i maybe i'm sure i'm I, because i'm human i'm sure there's an ego component i'm sure it, there's some ego gratification there but well why not yeah <laughs> but but more than but yeah but more than anything else it's just it is it is it is food for my own soul you know, because it, it does come down to get it. To me, it comes down to meaning, you know, like I think what you're doing here is maybe not with me, but with, with in, in, the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, what you're doing uh, with these interviews and, and all these different perspectives and people that's meaningful. You know, it, it, it's meaningful. Now, are, I mean, are, you know, will it make you two billion dollars in the next couple of weeks? If it does, you know, you got to cut me in. But. <laughs> What do you mean no? <laughs> what do you mean no? He's leaving. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, you lied to me again. You keep coming back every year. That's the bad part of it. Every time I see you, you're just following him around with that camera. <laughs> yes, boss. <laughs> Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> but, okay, so the situation is this, that you did record the album. It got a lot of critical acclaim it's probably found you new audiences and obviously you've touched a few people with this album um i think your life has turned around a bit in in that i think you're a much happier person i think your situation is better right how was it performing that album at this point who who was that guy i mean there's a big part of that you know when you hear some of the lyrics and and um but i think it was bb king who who said that you know you don't really actually make good blues music when you're really depressed you remember what it was like to feel really bad, and you try to share that experience with other. Or, or you know, because when you're really down, you you can't even crawl 
you, you know, you could barely crawl across the floor. No, what, quite you said that it was tough at times. Were there points where you weren't playing at all and you were crawling on the floor? Yeah, I had some. I had I, I had points when I was out uh, touring California, um, uh, and on the off days, I, I I mean, I'm sure it was depression, but it felt like the flu. You know, like where I literally crawled across the room, and um, I remember uh, one day in particular talking with Stephen Suen from Biscuits and Blues, and he was very helpful. He just said, it's going to pass. You're going to get through it. Um, I didn't know if I believed him. A lot of people said that to me. You don't get over it, you get, you get through it. I didn't, but no, I was looking. I, I hate to make jokes about this, but I, it's, it was my way of coping. But I was looking at bridges in, in the Bay Area thinking, hmm, that looks like a good one to jump off of. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. Most people were looking at it for the photo op. You know, I was looking at it for the jumping op. Um, and my, but my kids kept me in the game, you know? I mean, I, uh, how, how are your kids doing? Good, my, my son's 14 now, my daughter's 18. Um, and, 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 and having children that age is also kind of, you know, constrained some of the, the amount of touring I was willing to do. As my son gets older, you know, I'm sure as he approaches 18, I'll probably venture, try to venture out more if it's possible, you know? Uh, how have they come out of this? Oh, man. And I'm not sure if it's, if they've, if it's already come out, because it's an ongoing process, I would presume. But they each handled it differently. My daughter, there was there was never any yelling. There was never anything uh, outwardly, uh, you know, abusive I should, between their mom and I. But when people simply don't love each other, it's people sense it. They figure it out, you know. Yeah. And my daughter, when we finally announced to the kids that we were getting a divorce, my daughter said that uh, she. She wasn't surprised. Mm. My son was devastated. He was shocked. You know, and 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 uh, it could be a function of age. It could be a function of the girl versus boy thing. You know, like what they pay attention to, with relationship dynamics. Um, but the reality of it is, uh, fortunately, I mean, if there divorce is hard, no matter how it's unfolding. But sure. the 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 ex and I have been good to each other. And I think that at least it's lessened the blow. I'm hoping it's lessened the blow considerably because I've seen other situations where, for whatever sets of reasons, things weren't amicable and between the people getting a divorce and the kids felt it. And so we just always vowed we're not going to you know, use the kids as pawns in this stuff. And um, so that part's been cool. But it's just, it's, it's just change, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just change for them. And I was a stay-at-home dad early on for both those kids. I was very, very present. But I still, you know, I work out with my son three, four times a week. At the gym, I, we talk about school. I say, how was school? He says, it sucks. Okay, okay, that's cool, son. That's the end of that conversation. <laughs> do you, do you, have you met any girls? Girls are dumb. Well, okay, son, that won't last. But how's the computer games? They're awesome. Okay, that's cool. Hopefully my, that won't last. That won't last. And then my daughter, she's... Uh, She's 18. What can I say? You know, she's she had a rough go through high school, but she's you know a very bright kid and she's figuring it out. And so yeah, it it isn't. It, it wasn't like the the whole divorce thing. It wasn't like just oh wow I failed at a marriage. I feel so bad. It's like I failed a whole lot of people around me. And that was the part that really hit me. I I felt like I failed as a parent and I failed as a son to my parent. You know, like everything just kind of came in from all these angles. And yet, I was fortunate in that my ex-in-laws, my father, 
everybody was so supportive. Like, look, it happens. You're not the first person on the face. So I was very, it's, I can't lay, I can't claim like, oh wow, I'm some kind of super strong person. For you. I was very fortunate to have a good support uh, network around me and, 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 and same, same with the kids. You know, they, they had um, some support from the grandparents. and. That's a way though. I mean, I think we go through things and you think I'm the only one going through this or whatever. And then you talk about it, and you realize you're not the only one. Everybody else has gone through this long time before you, whatever. Right? Oh, I know. I almost feel cliche sometimes when yeah. I talk about it. Like, or I meet somebody who's gone through a much worse. And um, then it's always worse. Oh, well, when I was going through my divorce, I, um, I, was, I was talking to a, um, I, I won't mention his name because I don't know if he wants the information out, but, well, it's pretty heavy, but his, his, one of his wife died of cancer, stomach cancer. And... And he get he would get mad at guys, understandably, who would say that I never loved my wife. Like we talk about a divorce, and, and maybe they've been married for thirty years, and you say I never loved that woman, or I, like they almost reinvent, mm -hmm. they uh, what's the re reconstruct history to make themselves feel better. Right. Um, and he's like, and then and then there are people who complain sometimes when they're you know they're, when their ex is still out there walking around, it's difficult for them. And he said, no, if you ever love that person of course you're not going to wish that you know you want them to be okay ultimately i i want my ex-wife to be happy you don't want to be with somebody who's not happy to be with you mm -hmm. just so you feel secure so does it now now that things are looking quite differently or that's the impression i'm getting um are you now itching to write new material and do another album or how What's the thought process? In that? Should I recycle the joke I told Bill Wax in the lobby, or sure, whatever? Doing the up with up with people tribute album. I'm too happy to do a blues album now. <laughs> thinking about doing like maybe a polka record. No, how do you feel? I mean, is, is it difficult one to play that album? I'm not that mentally centered. I mean, I'm still pretty messed up. I could pull off another record. I'm pretty sure. Um, I probably just get done quicker. <laughs> it's easy. To, it's 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 easy for me to to be happy and still recall, or even to be an empath for somebody else's experience. I've been that way my entire life. I've been very sensitive to what other people are feeling and going through. And that's all still legitimate, um, a resource for, for creativity, in my humble opinion. Um, I think sometimes when you're too close to something, it does slow you down. Sometimes when you're too close to something, it stops you all you know, completely. So I mean, in many ways, I'm surprised I even got through the record, let alone I think it's my best work to date and I think in a way I got lucky because I think I could have gone in a totally total opposite direction given my my my, my personal situation um, but no I'm very uh, I'm very hungry to make another record I've been knocking around the idea of doing an acoustic record I do a lot of acoustic shows back home and I have people tell me I actually like this intimate setting more but then I'm trying to figure out, well, what would it sound like? Because I want to be, a, you know, a little different. Um, and I have my heroes, and I'm like, well, you know, I, like I really love Doug McLeod's charisma and, and, and presence, and his. So he, but he's already doing this thing, and so I don't want to really try to like. I don't want to like I'm aping this. And then I look at like Chris Whitley, who was more, you know, kind of in the blues a little bit. I don't know if he ever got much acknowledgement in the community, but he definitely had some blues influence in his writing. Yeah, he was amazing. And he was amazing. And I listened to him a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well, that's already been done, and that's a lot. <laughs> um, and then I kind of go around to the. I just discovered. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I just discovered Townsend Van Zandt. And so the. 
the melody and the lyrical thing, and, and and that can still weave in and out of the blues and the old country and all that. But then again, like, okay, so what do I do with that? And so I thought maybe the answer is all of the above. Just just don't overthink it. Don't just sit down and start recording, you know. And um, that's probably the best advice I ever got. In fact, about the process was from um, you know Dick Sherman. Mm -hmm. Uh, back when I was doing my second album, because Dick did the liner notes on my on my Walk That Fine Thin Line record, but I said, I don't know what kind of record I want to make. He said, Well, try to make it a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, All right. Seems simple. Well, it, it it's like it's like I, is that supposed to be a lot of pressure or no pressure? I don't know which one it is. It's both. But the point is. That's the, if the creative mind. You can probably tell from this interview. I take circuitous routes. Some would call it ADHD. I call it a circuitous route of thought. I just kind of let it go. You know, that's the, that's. I think that's where the good stuff in life can come from. Mm -hmm. Having the serendipity of you know, of, of exploration and, and, and passion and. and uh, um, but I sometimes think about doing like a really. I've never done a really really a real straight up pure blues record. I've always had these soul and all these other things kind of coming in. Um, and so sometimes I think about like, you know, I have friends in Chicago, you know, like with some studios. What if I just go down and hire the guys who played with Albert Collins and stuff and do a straight up thing? And so sometimes that's there. And then there's the acoustic thing. Um, and then uh, I talked about to Dave, Dave Gross has been talking to me in the past couple of years about going out to New Jersey and doing uh, more, you know, he's working with that drummer from, you know, Jason Mraz. I don't know if you know who that mm -hmm. guy is. Yeah. Well, um, I can't remember the drummer's name right now. Michael Bram, and, and who's a great singer, too. Michael Bram's a great singer, um, drummer. And he just said, let's come over and do, like, something very um, T-Bone Burnett, you know, very uh, roots music, but, like, upright bass and, you know, brushes and, and you know, acoustic guitar. And, right. and I said, yeah, that'd be cool, too. So I don't know, um, but I ha but the first step is to write the very first verse of the first song. So is is you writing know, would, an ongoing process, or do you do that only when you? I sh I no I'm, I'm I unfortunately don't have the craft of writing down. I was talking about Jeff Paris earlier, how he was saying at one point he was writing three songs a day. I'm like wow, um, and so he had this whole kind of production line thing going on, and it's very admirable. I shake him out of my sleeve, you know. Um, and sometimes I I'll do something and and and, and it'll, I have a few things that have sat for years, and because you get to a certain point you're like oh my gosh it was almost there but I took it to the bridge and I jumped off <laughs> you know <laughs> so then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh I had this other song I was working on which is in a different key and I got this song over here hey wait a minute this idea in a different key could be the bridge I just maybe have to change the words to make it you know like right. somewhat um, contiguous I guess or whatever consistent um, and then sometimes you don't even have to go that crazy with it because sometimes there's some there's kind of cool there's a coolness to um, left turns and lyrical construction you know so anyhow I, like this conversation I guess I don't know I've been all over the map I apologize I hope you got something usable out of this I hope so too I mean, it's not like you paid me or nothing so. <laughs> it's not like that at all you got what you paid for <laughs> Although the coffee, do you want the coffee back? Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> you have to wait. No, you know you what? You have to wait a minute. <laughs> oh. 
the places. And oh my god! <laughs> you feel like you regret. You're regretting it now, aren't you? No, I never regret talking. Right. To you. I always love talking to you. You know, right that, back, man. You you have um you're very open about things, and this is the same thing we've discussed this before about your presence on Facebook. And sometimes you post things, and I think, well, why did he do that? Yeah, yeah. You, Not, you know, recently you questioned about about playing and what you what what you're giving out. Right, right. And 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 I I just think. You know, it's interesting that you're willing to share ideas like that. I don't believe in pretense, and but I understand why people might feel more comfortable living there, and and I know sometimes people might even resent the fact that I'm almost. I mean, I'm not open about everything. I mean, I not once in an interview have I talked about how handsome both of you are. See, I'm keeping that to myself. I I don't I don't um, you know, when the when the girlfriend's asking about how the dress looks on her, you know, I usually say nice. Okay, good, good oh, she's going to hear this one now. Darn it. <laughs> right before the BMAs, too. Um, no, she's beautiful, and I love her. By the way, so... Um, no, I mean, there's an honesty about you, which is which makes for a lot more interesting... So, somebody interview. called me earthy when I was in high school, and I thought it was an insult. Like, I didn't know what it meant. Like, yeah, did I not shower this week? What is it? Um, and, it, and I'm sure it was a coping mechanism, you know, uh, for a lot of weird things when I was young. But going back to my neighborhood, people saying, hey, you were such a sweet kid. You know, you were so open. I'm like, well, you know, when I was out of my house, <laughs> it's, a comp it's a compensatory facade, I think, you know, the, te the tears of the clown thing. You asked me one time, like, guy, you joke around a lot, but some of your songs are so tear they're tear jerkers. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you can't live there. You can't live in that other place. And nor can I, you know, honestly, either place. Li either place. I mean, these are human emotions. Some of my favorite entertainers uh, have been people like, uh, you ever see Paul Thorne? No, but I've heard great things about him. He just takes you everywhere. He's funny. He's He's got one song called, If I Can Get Over You, If I Can Get Over Her, I Can Get Over You. And he sets up the whole, which is a beautiful line. But but he sets it up in this. He sets this um, scenario. He's how much time do we have, by the way? All the time in the okay. world. Okay. All right. He sets up this scenario. You do not. He said, "You're, you're not." I even, turned off the. You're not even recording, are you? You're not even recording. Hey, I'm trying to get a kickback from Paul's organization. Let me finish this story. Um, you might have to pay lawyers. That's right. <laughs> I might have to. If I can. Okay. So he's doing this thing. He's playing acoustic guitar. There's a YouTube clip of it. It's the one with him with acoustic. And he's talking, and I can't do it total justice, but he has this, I can't do it any justice, he has this Louisiana, you know, southern accent that the women go gaga over. He's an ex-professional fighter, you know, rugged good looks, and he's got this accent, and he's talking the story about when he's a little kid in elementary school, and he saw his girlfriend kissing another, kissing, kissing another boy in the playground, and how devastated he was, and how he went home with and I'm not gonna do this justice, but he threw himself on his Planet of the Apes sheets, and cried and cried and and then he's but he's describing like what the room would have looked like and it would have been like the early 70s i mean it's like a word picture as he's talking about it and the audience is laughing and blah 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 and then he starts into the song and it's beautiful it's like he takes you into that comedic kind of and then he snatches it back and brings it back and so um i think you i don't think he's i think to pull that off and 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 i i think that just has to be who you I believe that's who, has to be who you are, I, I, but I don't think anyone approaches any necessarily. And this, is, this isn't me being politically correct. I don't think any single approaches any better than the others. There are other uh, performers who won't say two words to the audience, or you mm -hmm. know, Miles Davis used to turn his back to the audience. I mean, there's a million different ways to reach people, but I think mostly it probably just comes from just figuring it out. 
who you are, who you are and, mm -hmm. and what's going to work best for you. Um, I've had people tell me that, man, you're a little bit too self-effacing sometimes. You're, you know, you're really good. You shouldn't be, you know, and I said, it's, I can hear the, I can hear good and talent everywhere. And I believe there have been times in my life where maybe my ego would block it. You know what I mean? You'd see somebody do something a little better than you, but you'd look for their flaws. You know, like, oh, he's a pretty good, you know, lead player, but his rhythms stink, and you'd focus on his rhythms. But no, you just look at what he does really, he or she does really well, and you absorb it, and you take it in, and you celebrate it. And how can, if that's still kind of selfish, I mean, if you, in a good way, self-interest, you get better from that. If you, but if you come in with an aesthetic about anything in life that you, needs to feed your own ego, I only like things that I do well. I like to see people do things that I do well. You, you live life of blinders, and, and you're not really living life, in my humble opinion. It's beautiful. On that word, I want to thank you for doing this. Thank you. I, I really always enjoy talking to you. I don't know you very well, but every time I talk to you, you, you reveal yourself even more to me, and it's, um, it's always an interesting conversation. Well, I so. appreciate it, man, and, and, and it's, it makes... When I go back next week to see my therapist, I'm not as, as, as garrulous, so she appreciates it too. She said thank you. <laughs> we, we will chat again sometime soon. Right, thank you very much. All right, guys, thanks.